Hey everybody, it's me, Evgeny. Before we start today's interview, I want to let you know about an event later this year, which, if you're into this podcast, will be right up your alley. It's called Data Center World, and it's scheduled for August 16th in Orlando, Florida. Data Center World is the leading conference and expo for data center and IT infrastructure professionals. It's the only industry event that delivers exclusive state of the data center research findings, in-depth workshops, 50-plus conference sessions, keynotes from industry luminaries, the largest offering of data center technology solutions, and unlimited networking opportunities. Find out more about the event and register at www.datacenterworld.com. That's www.datacenterworld.com. Hope to see you there. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Data Center Podcast by Data Center Knowledge. I'm Evgeny Sverlik, Editor-in-Chief at DCK. We have with us today Chris Crosby. He's founder and CEO of Compass Data Centers. Chris, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks, Evgeny. Let's explain briefly what Compass is to those of our listeners who may not be familiar. Compass will be 10 years old this year, right? That's right. That's right. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. We, yeah, we're, we're a pure play wholesale provider. Uh, we serve um, really anything from the core, the very large data centers, 30 megawatt plus down to the edge uh, with with 100 kilowatt edge edge units. Um, and uh, we're currently in, in uh, North America uh, and have just uh, started to expand in, into EMEA as well. And tell us how many data centers you operate today and where and what sorts of customers lease your facilities? Sure. So we serve predominantly uh, cloud and uh, we, we serve cloud, we serve um, enterprise, and then we serve um, some, some co-location providers as well. Um, but our bulk of our business is on the cloud side. Um, we've got, uh, uh, let's see, geez, 18 different facilities. And then uh, we just launched on another three uh, on EMEA. So we're, we're, you know, we're pretty busy right now. We've got three big campuses in the US in Phoenix, Dallas, and Northern Virginia. And then we've got a couple campuses in Toronto, uh, as well as in uh, Montreal as well. And uh, where in EMEA did you guys launch? We haven't announced yet. So, oh, uh, I see. We have not announced, but we break ground. So, <laughs> Okay, breaking news here on the Data Center Podcast. Compass has entered EMEA. Okay, um, let's let's start with the, the biggest story um, for everybody today. The pandemic looks like Compass has taken all the kind of standard measures in response to COVID, reducing on-site personnel, customer food traffic, more cleaning, more on-site hygiene protocols, and so on. Um, can you kind of think back and recall the day it became clear to you that uh, Compass will have to make these drastic operational changes, that the pandemic was serious and, you know, demanded a serious response? Yeah, so back in December of, of uh, 2019 was when we started first hearing about uh, what was going on in Asia. Um, and we actually implemented changes in our Montreal facility starting in January. Uh, early January, we activated our business uh, continuity program and and the team there, and uh, and started initiating our our protocol changes. At that point in time, we we continued to evolve it, um, but we were actually a little little early on that front, um, just due to the uh, the client base that we have, and and making sure that we really also wanted to make sure that our our employees were, um, you know, were, were taken care of, were protected um, in light of you know, not knowing what was coming. 
uh, and, and, you know, there was still so much travel, um, so many things going on, you know, with an outbreak, it, it, a lot of different things could have happened. Uh, so really proud of our BCP team. It didn't involve any of our executive leadership. It was really activating our senior leadership in the company and um, really, really proud of that team. They did a phenomenal job. We were also able to keep all of our construction sites going. We had construction going on in six different markets, uh, able to keep our trades safe, um, keep them operating and, uh, you know, continue to evolve and, and lead on, on that front, uh, making sure that uh, people could work, pay their bills, but but still, uh, you know, be be safe because it was it obviously it's, wasn't as scary times from that perspective. And, and you said uh, executive leadership was not involved in those decisions. Um, how come? You know, you want to make sure during a time of crisis that you're you're balancing the needs between what the business needs and then what what the people need. And and we while we were heavily involved from a from a executive leadership team, we'd have our, our briefing calls on a daily basis. Um, we allowed the BCP team to make the decisions for the company to ensure that the people before the profits. So there were, there, there must've been some new measures that, uh, had to be taken that weren't part of kind of the regular business continuity planning. Um, what, what were those things? You know, one of the biggest ones was around shift management and cross contamination of, of, of folks between sites. Um, we had, uh, you know, early on before we knew everything that was going on, what you did with cleaning protocols, how you, um, how you, we would, we brought trailers onto sites to have quarantine zones. If there was something that came on, you know, that happened at the site. Um, there were a lot of things that we did early on that were maybe over, overdone, uh, you know, based upon as, as you learned about the disease as, as it went on. But, uh, you know, now it's, it's a. It's a very, very clean protocol and very straightforward when someone does get sick because there are people that get sick, uh, how you deal with it and how you notify and how you how you clean up, how you still protect people's privacy, but, uh, you know, address the issues at hand. And so it's um, I think it's great. It, it, there definitely was a additions on the BCP to the pandemic approach because, you know, this thing being as contagious as it was, was different than, you know, the way that we had thought about pandemics before from a BCP perspective. So the pandemic is still here. Obviously, you know, ebbs and flows in terms of infection rates. Which of the measures are still in place today? In other words, are the facilities still operating in the same mode uh, that they were operating maybe in March? No, we do escalate the levels depending upon what goes on. We we do have some ability now. Um, you know, we were in some skeleton crew type situations during the during the peak of the pandemic at various points in time. So you know, and the um, ability for folks to go to sites, um, management, and when they can at attend a site. So we have different, think of it like DEFCON levels, right? There's different levels based upon the severity of things. And so all we've done is establish those protocols. And if those things occur, um, then you just reactivate those protocols. It's it's very straightforward. We've taken the guesswork out of it for the people that are involved. And um, and you have data centers in the U.S. and Canada. And have have the official guidelines been different in the two countries? Completely and, and completely different. Okay, so <laughs> yeah. you've had to implement different procedures depending on where each facility is, or how did you manage that contrast? Uh, so the biggest thing was to make sure that that we're working closely with the local governments on the essential services aspect of the business and ensuring that our employees can do what they need to do, that they have safe ability to get to and from sites. Um, you know, we did a variety of things uh, during different timeframes, maybe you bring meals to the site, you know, have it, have it, you know, 
instead of, you know, everybody's getting individual meals or things along those lines. You're just trying to, to isolate and, but then provide at the same time um, when it was very, uh, very much at the skeleton type stage. But, um, you know, for us, you know, Montreal versus Ontario or Toronto versus, you know, Dallas versus, I mean, it, it just depended based upon those AHJs, but we kept the same protocols in place, but you'd have to deal with the government differently in one, in one location versus another. So most of the difference was, um, in access, basically who was allowed to go to work or. That's right. And then when you think about construction sites as well, you know, if you had a supplier that was in lockdown, but you needed a door frame or, but is that an essential service? Is that not an essential service? You know, so there were some of those types of things from a supply chain perspective as well. As have many others, you guys have had to pause some regular maintenance work, kind of things that uh, people do into uh, to different equipment in the facilities on a regular basis to to make sure it doesn't break down. We did early on, um, you know, but uh, that was much more during that the two week lockdown that kind of globally occurred. Um, it kind of went on for a period of time, but in working closely with our clients, uh, we're, we're back to normal maintenance type of, uh, type of schedules and caught up on that front. We have not deferred, uh, per se. There was a short time frame, but we're back to caught up. So just for a couple of weeks, it was deferred. Yeah. A few. Yeah. Basically, um, you have to be careful about how you go about doing, uh, doing those types of maintenance events and how many people are there and, um, you know, have the right protocols. If the surf, if as a service provider is coming to do it, you know, are you keeping social distancing? Are you doing those sorts of things? And so we, we made some adjustments procedurally, um, but, uh, have been able to, to adjust. A lot of people are still now are working remotely, right? Uh, that used to maybe go to the office or go to the mm -hmm. facility. Um, what sorts of remote monitoring management capabilities, um, does your work from home staff have? Um, and, uh, is any of that are any of those capabilities new? Uh, were they added as a result of this new operating mode? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we're we're very uh, focused on um, making sure that that we're not. Um, we, we try to do what we can do over cellular. We we really try not to network the facilities together to prevent the risk of from a cyber cyber attack and and that sort of thing. So it's either a push out type of play. But um, all it is is, you know, from an alarming perspective um, and, and and monitoring type of perspective is 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 you know view only type of play. But that was already in place, and so that was core to our business prior to the pandemic. So just alerting, alarms and alerts, um, monitoring. There's no kind of management, remote management. Correct. And that's Stuff. by design from, from a compass perspective from day one, we didn't want to have the ability to remotely control something so you, uh, at a site. Okay. So you, you don't want these communications going over the internet or someone could uh, break in and uh, hack us, vandalize, <laughs> hack you and vandalize your cooling systems. That's right. So which of the changes that you guys have made to the way the company operates during the pandemic, uh, which do you think will stay in the long term? You know, I think the way that you treat when people are sick, you know, I, I look back at some of these things and when you have flu outbreaks or things like that, right, and you have a group of folks that would get sick, I, I love the fact that that's now, you know, we now have a very clear protocol around that. Um, you know, knowing who was that, that someone was ill, uh, making sure that we we check on those people and that we separate them from, from the other folks. I, I think that's that'll be here forever. 
and I think that's great. You know, whether it's a common cold that spreads through everybody or it's, uh, you know, the flu or something as stomach bugs or whatever, I think that we've got a better, uh, better approach to it just in general. So, so, okay. So the protocols that you guys have now for people getting COVID, you're going to keep them for people getting, getting the flu or something. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's shift gears. I have a list of trends, industry trends that I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on and the first one is clean energy there's a lot of focus on renewable energy for data centers um lately it feels like it's there was you know there's always interest but it it feels like it's uh, accelerated last year and uh, especially last year um it it appears to be driven primarily by data center by data center customers um wanting to clean up their carbon footprint i think last year it was it, it also started being driven also by investor interest um how do you guys think about renewables at compass are you investing in clean energy have you seen more interest from customers we focus really on trying to get at least let's talk about our campuses we try to get our own substations uh, so that we can take in at high voltage and we have better better options in terms of uh, access to green energy um, at the locations that we're at so it's been part of our selection process from a site selection perspective going to one area with one power provider in a metro versus another area um, based upon what the renewable choices are, um, that has been core to us, uh, from, you know, for, uh, it's been quite some time now, so probably the last seven years, six, six, seven years. So, so if, if there isn't, if, if there isn't renewable energy available on the grid, you guys won't go to that local site? No, there are, there's, there's obviously, there are places where you might have a client that, that needs to be in a certain location um, and some heavily regula- regulated areas don't have as many options as as unregulated areas where you may have more options. Um, so, you know, you, you have to live with some of that from time to time, but it's definitely, as we look at where we site our campuses and things like that, um, you know, it's definitely been a consideration for us. I mean, our Montreal facilities are obviously 100% hydro, um, you know, power, we've got, uh, as is most of the power in Montreal. But, uh, you know, you, when you take a place like a Phoenix or a Dallas, you you choose locations where you can, you know, definitely get the options that you need, uh, and, even in Northern Virginia as well. And as a, as a wholesale provider, um, what role do you play in power procurement? Do you, do you guys actually, you know, strike the power contracts for your customers on their behalf, or do they, do you just build, kind of build the buildings and let them handle the contracting for energy yeah we work collaboratively with them but part of our control offering to the client is to allow them to um take the meter if we're able to give them the meter but you still have to do other legwork on the front end to be able to give the options so even if they do take the meter how have your uh, clients been addressing the you know the intermittency issue with renewables um there is you know there's a lot of uh uh, renewable energy credit decoupling that's happening, especially in the U.S. in in markets where where it's difficult to get direct renewable energy. Um, a lot of issues. They're very complicated uh, system. How have you seen your clients handle that? So you know, with some of the largest customers, um, you know, they have obviously very sophisticated power procurement uh, plays and how they do things in bulk. You know, at a you know, at scale um, on a grid level is different than 
let's say a one-off customer that's that's doing things. We predominantly deal with the larger clients uh, in that regard. We don't deal a lot with the credits and all that that world of of buying buying things. We prefer to choose locations where we know we can get access to renewable energy. But um, you know, you don't always have that choice. We really look at the green. Uh, green side in a, in a holistic manner from a stewardship perspective so everything from how we build the product you know so the things we've done with carbon cure to how we do our roofing to trying to get to zero waste or you know limited dumpsters on the on the job site to all the way through the um you know we've been no water from day one uh we do view water as a as a pretty precious resource as well so you know i, I think we're we're very holistic in our thinking of guinea so it's not like you know even if you don't have a renewable a great renewable mix you may you can still do lots of other things in terms of your land use and how you go about building and you know not putting up wasted wasted things because the materials are ultimately uh you know very much a large part of the carbon footprint as well so are there other aspects of sustainability than Absolutely. energy in addition to energy which sounds like you mostly let your clients handle and when you were talking about large customers you're talking about companies like at the scale of Microsoft or, or Google or Facebook that kind of have these very sophisticated um, energy procurement okay um next thing is investment there's been a wave of new institutional investors eager to invest in data centers in recent years compass is a beneficiary of that trend you guys were acquired three years ago by a couple of such investors got another 3 billion commitment in 2019. I'm curious about your view of the effects all this newly available capital has had on the industry. I've heard worries that there are too many inexperienced teams getting capital entering the market, complaints that the, you know, infrastructure funds or pension funds have pushed M&A valuations to crazy levels. What's your take here? You know, I, I, I here, here's the thing. I think data centers are infrastructure. So it is. It makes sense to be in that category. How rapidly it occurred to go from being an anomaly in the real estate category to being a core real estate area of data centers to quickly shifting to infrastructure, um, that occurred very quickly. But if you look at it, and, and this pandemic has, has shown that out, right? I mean, what is there if there's not squad casts and Zooms and, you know, these sorts of things, you know, you, you can't do things without the data center. And it is core. Um, if you look at a data center, you look at what goes through from an entitlement perspective, the power, the fiber that goes to them, you know, these are like, these are like ports, you know, they, they don't move easily and, and the clusters don't move easily. Um, you can't just take data centers and put them wherever you feel like it because you've got connections with the power as well as with the fiber side of things. And, and um, so I think that data center locations are going to refresh over very long periods of time but they'll always be data center locations. Uh, that, that's my personal view. And so I do view it as infrastructure. Um, and, and I think that the, the folks that are thinking in that capacity versus you know, the, the build to last versus build to exit, I think are gonna be the successful ones in that, in that game. Companies that invest in infrastructure for long-term versus maybe some of private equity players that have traditionally funded this industry that uh, you know, are looking to exit for, um, fairly quickly, at least sooner yeah, think, than, than an infrastructure fund would. And I think the infrastructure folks having that long view is is, is great for the industry because you're going to make better decisions, right, over the quality of the building that you're going to build, how how long it's, you know, you're going to think differently if you think about a long-term asset. It's, it's you don't build an airport 
you know, to, to just get rid of the airport, right? You know the airport's going to be there for decades and decades and decades. And data centers are very similar to that. And I think that mentality is very good for our industry. I don't view it as a negative. I think it's a great, I think it's a great option. I think that the private funds are, you know, at or below the cost of where the public funds are at. I mean, you know, when you live in the infrastructure world, you're not living by the quarter, right? You're able to take a longer term view. And I think that's very positive for the industry. It's positive from a, you know, you'll make better stewardship decisions from a, from a sustainability perspective. You're, you're just going to make better longer term decisions. It seems like a, a more comfortable arrangement for, for kind of the business models in the, in the data center world than the publicly traded route where, you know, you may spend a few hundred million dollars to build a facility um, that will not provide any returns for a year. And even if those returns will be attractive, but then you know, at the end of the quarter, you have to uh, be in front of uh, analysts and, uh, and, uh, and answer questions. Why, why are you spending this money? Yeah, look, I think there's definitely advantages to being, there's advantages to being public. And if you've got the scale of a digital realty or an Equinix, right, you, you can live with some of those blips uh, from time to time. I think there's challenges though, too, to being public and, um, you know, I don't miss it. I'll tell you, uh, I don't miss, miss that, that lens. Uh, but you know, all investors are expecting to get return on, you know, return on their investment in a, in, in a, in a, in some semblance of a timely fashion. I think just as a private, as private groups, you know, there's maybe a little more patient than the public guys, uh, have, have to deal with. And you said, you don't, you don't miss it. And I, I want to, um, fill, fill in the listeners that maybe aren't familiar with your story. Um, Chris used to work at Digital Realty. He was one of the earliest employees there um, at some point, well, 10 years ago, deciding he would... Um, well, I, I, why don't I let you tell that story? Maybe briefly tell us um, about your decision to, to, to leave Digital and to start Compass. You know, it, it was, uh, first off, great run at, at Digital Realty and had great colleagues and still very good friends of mine. And uh, you know, when I left, I, I really thought I was not going back into the business. Um, and the genesis of Compass was was really because I kept talking to people about what I thought was missing from a model perspective for for the industry, and in terms of um, you know giving giving users more of a more control and of of where a single single tenancy type of environment versus a multi tenancy type of environment, and and letting them have a lot more control over things. And we've evolved that Compass business into a kit of parts where we can offer a lot of different product types. And, uh, you know, it's been a lot of fun to do, but uh, if I wasn't leaving digital planning to do Compass, it, it, it happened that I kept finding myself talking about the same thing that I thought was missing in the marketplace. And, and we've been uh, blessed and successful to, to, you know, fill some of that wedge out there. And, and that was, so you guys started with these uh, single tenant kind of mid-size data centers. Yeah, uh, as opposed to kind of massive campuses that uh, digital was building. Yeah, I mean, we I didn't want to compete against my, you know, my friends, my baby, so to speak. You're right, the thing that I was a big part of. So, uh, and and all of my uh, colleagues and everything else. So you start where you go where there was uh, no one, and we started in secondary markets, and um, you know, the business model has evolved. Our ability to uh, to deliver products of, of various sizes has evolved and in our construction program taking 
taking really the world of manufacturing into the approach of, of how you do construction has evolved over, over the years. So a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and investment and innovation. And, uh, you know, I think we're one of the few groups with a chief innovation officer with Nancy, you know, that what we do in R&D and, and really trying to constantly uh, push the envelope of how to do this better and um, for our for the benefit of our clients, which reduces their cost and increases their quality. Chief, having a chief innovation officer and investing in R&D um, isn't, it isn't part of a typical um, data center developer business model. So where do you guys uh, concentrate that R&D focus? It's in a variety of different areas. Like some of the, some of the initiatives we announced uh, last year, like Carbon Cure was a great one, you know, where we're, we're taking, you know, we do concrete structures and, and, and how can you reduce the cement content? And so we, we, we uh, partnered with Carbon Cure um, and now are able to, you know, reduce down the amount and actually actually take CO2 out of the atmosphere uh, and put it into the building, um, which is really cool. Uh, turn it into part, you know, basically limestone. And um, so some, you know, we've got innovations from stewardship perspective. We're working on some things there uh, again this year that, that hopefully we'll be able to announce a little later this year um, on on. You know, from a from a sustainability, we do a lot from a process perspective as well. We we did a uh, um, you know streamlining of how submittals get done in the world of construction, which sounds really boring, but you know it, it this is how you increase quality, uh, decrease the time frame that it takes to get things done, make sure that you 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 have things done the right way. So it's everything from process to product uh, on the innovation front. Nancy's done a great job. Some of the innovations we do around diversity, like we have. All you know, um, all of our uh, we've been able to introduce so many women into the field of construction, and it's such a great business lens for us because we see so many more, so much business value over how we're able to uh, bring junior construction management into the business and what their lenses are uh, is is a great lens, you know, versus the the all male job site lens, you know, you don't get to see quite as much. So. It really hits on a lot of different facets from our perspective in terms of innovation. So, so you guys had kind of a specific um, hiring goal to diversify your team to hire more women. Hundred percent, hundred percent. That's across the company. I mean, just in general, if you have, you know, going back to my roots at at, at Bell Northern Research Nortel, if you have a highly diverse group of of folks aligned around a culture with a vision you produce the best. And, uh, and so we've believed that from day one in the company. And so it's a very intentional focus for us to not just, not just background or gender or race or color or creed, but also personality testing. We want different personality types on teams. And, and so it's, it's really a, it's really a, f um, a fun place to be when you have a, a lot of different types of people, because you, 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 every day is a, is a great day. We don't make assumptions about, uh, about each other or why people say certain comments or whatever. We're, we're just a very curious team and uh, aligned around a common vision. This, this issue of diversity, it's not just in, in construction, right? It's uh, in the data center industry. It's uh, especially acute and there's been a growing shortage of data center talent for companies to hire. The talent pool is aging and quite homogenous, you know, primarily white dudes, 15 up. Have you guys felt the effect of this? Has uh, has the talent market been increasingly rough for you? You know, it's been interesting. We've we've really leveraged the uh, veteran community as well because the veteran community is coming in highly diverse as well. Um, we do we leverage that plus the investments that we've made into technology. Some of the things that we've done, our electronic checklists, the way that we can 
we value the the Japanese concept of of pokeyoke, which is um, the concept of inadvertent error prevention. And so, how do we how do we use systems to allow people to perform very well? Much like you know, you can land a plane on the Hudson because you follow the checklist. Um, uh, you know, the same types of concepts. How do we take those things from other industries and apply them into our industry, not just in how we build our product, but also how we operate the facilities, how we secure the facilities. And so that's that's allowed us to neutralize things. We're not relying upon, okay, okay, we're, we're relying upon self-discovery and the empowerment of the worker, as opposed to having to be relied upon training and years in service and things like that in order to perform a job well. Uh, so it, it's a, it's just a different mentality. It's part of, you know, part of, how Toyota transformed the, you know, the automotive industry uh, from the GM way. We we apply the same principles, and and uh, if you stay very disciplined around it, um, you know, you get the benefits because, you know, while I'm a middle-aged white guy, you know, I don't want to have a whole company of middle-aged white guys. There's nothing, nothing beneficial to that. So okay, so so instead of instead of looking for candidates that have the exact skill set um, that matches kind of the, the needs, the specific needs of the job. Um, you kind of broaden your available pool by maybe um, hiring people that may not necessarily have the exact skill set as long as you have a, a system in place to to train people and to give them those skills. That's right. That's right. If I turn a game of chess into a game of checkers, um, you broaden the universe of, of candidates that you can have. And um, I want to talk about those uh, two edge acquisitions. All right. It was, it was, I think it was one deal, but two companies, right? Mm-hmm. Um Compass acquired these uh, two edge computing oriented companies a couple of years back, Micro Data Center Builder and a software company specializing in managing remote edge facilities. Um, I haven't heard much about those companies since the acquisition was announced. Sure. Um, and you guys have kind of stayed pretty quiet um, press-wise, um, I think intentionally. What results have there been so far um, from that edge deal? So we're we're really really happy so radix iot we rebranded the software company as radix iot um uh, it's led by fred durla as our ceo for that business uh unreal company uh, the team there has um we've done a lot of a lot of different things we recently uh brought in another acquisition into that group from called mango uh which is uh, we, we've just continued to enhance that 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 business of how do you have um how do you have management of thousands of devices very very efficiently api-ish you know the the next generation of things the way that you would do it if you got to start over uh versus the old school world of of doing things from a uh, bms perspective um it's been very successful we're very very happy with that business uh you know encourage anybody to take a look at radix iot uh it's it's a really really neat business we use it both internally as well as you know for the compass products, but then we also uh, use it, you know, it it sells its product externally on all types of different applications from um, quick serve retail to managing solar uh, farms to, you know, to uh, solar panel farms to um, monitoring edge edge, uh, data centers, uh, cell towers, you name it. It's a really, really neat product to be able to do that cost effectively, integrate access controls and the like. Um, So... So not just data centers. No, not just data center, which is why we brand it as its own company. And um, so, what what source of I mean, can we give us maybe a few examples of uh, kind of the functionality that it provides? Sure. So it, it does. Um, so think of think of monitoring, 
Um, so I want to get, you know, data from from devices. Maybe it's uh, if I use the data center as the as the analogy, the air conditioning unit or the the power, you know, the breakers or this or that. If I'm thinking of a maybe it's temperatures and lighting or you know at a at a retail um, fast food place. Maybe it's uh, you know sensors on a uh, you know on a, from a um, a cell tower maybe is an access control um, and you know the air conditioning unit for the for the cell tower box right um, so there are a variety of different approaches there um, you, we incorporate access controls as well so we have the ability to do controls remotely so you know that's one of the big challenges is how do you deal with both security as well as security access control as well as monitoring um, we've got uh, the ability to do a lot of DSIM type of type of elements very quickly. Um, so you can take and have different views. Uh, there's a there's a GUI type of approach um, that, that gets utilized, but also more importantly, API based approach that goes into our clients Knox. And so just getting them and ingesting the data. Think of it ultimately like I can take any sort of protocols in to me and I can as soon as I take those protocols in, I normalize it into a data layer and then I present that data back. So uh, that that's what that's what Radix does in a in a nutshell, and it's a very very powerful, very simple tool. What? How has the um, the other company? Um, I forget what Edge point. It's Edge point. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they were uh, two guys. That's the, the the founders of that company. They uh, they worked for Google building building um, huts, network huts for uh, when Google was building out their um cellular uh, their wireless network and and they they founded this micro data center company uh seeking to kind of leverage that knowledge that they had accumulated while working for google um what have you guys done with that acquisition so we've taken it and we've evolved it um so the edge point product for us uh, you know we we work in these 100 kilowatt increments and you can assemble them together uh into various basically miniature data centers. Uh, you know, it, it looks and feels like a real data center, not, um, you know, I think you saw the ASHRAE notes about the, the dangers of the edge and how do you really put tens of millions of dollars of equipment into these, you know, data centers or these these edge facilities that aren't designed for that. And we, we really designed it to be that, to be the a, a true data center. Um, and uh, so we've we've continued to, gone through a couple of generations on that design. Um, it's been, uh, and, you know, we generally are talking only to, to larger type of clients. We don't do a lot of one-off type of type of things there. It's really for where folks want to roll that out. Um, and we offer it into a model that is, uh, you know, on a, on a, on a monthly basis, much like a lease. Um, you know, we can do that on an MSA and, um, you know, there are so many similarities to it that I think the big challenge that I, th I think a lot of folks on the edge and edge rollouts, one is what are the applications, you know, that are necessary. Um, and, and as you know, I know you cover it a lot, you know, some of them are more talk than they are reality at this point. And, uh, but two is how do you do it at, at scale? And, and, you know, the at scale part is difficult because you still go through the same things that you would do for any building, right? You have to get permitted and entitled and, and have those elements up. And so that plays very well into our land and, and land acquisition, land development team. So uh, we provide a full service offering in that regard. And and while we don't announce a whole lot of things, um, you know, we keep things kind of quiet on our end. Uh, we're very happy to have that as part of our portfolio as far as anything from the core to the edge. 
have um have you guys deployed any of those for customers or is this right now more of a uh, um table stakes for future we have um but uh you know we've we've uh i i would i will tell you it's not in terms of the hundreds of of units type of uh type of play so mm -hmm. uh it's it's still at a nascent stage from the edge perspective we will probably have some announcements on you know that we're doing um um with it with a group a little later uh hopefully here in the first half of this year um that's much more of a uh, something that is does belong in the public domain in terms of knowledge and and you know hopefully that'll show you some of those applications and things that that are are coming and getting real out there from the from the edge and i want to talk about um, your kind of shift from that early model of uh mid-sized data centers in in tier two markets to hyperscale well you, you didn't shift you kind of added the hyperscale element um you guys entered northern virginia and phoenix uh that was in 2019 right mm -hmm. um and then that followed the root acquisition in canada which was a, also a hyperscale play and that was all part of this kind of expanded focus on the hyperscale market how are the rules different in the in in the hyperscale market from your experience you know, I, the same principles apply in terms of how we started the business. I think what what happened was we we evolved the the kit of parts, if you will, on how to build and assemble at at a larger scales. Um, but the same contractual philosophies, the same ways that we were able to give levels of control on those medium sized data centers or those smaller data centers, we just basically evolved that into the large scale market as well. And um, you know, obviously our equity partners have been huge in terms of making that change that that allowed us to uh, do some of the things that we've done on the campuses that we have. Um, you know, campuses take a long time to develop. It's a long time to put a substation in and, you know, high voltage substation and, and develop the land. And um, so that that has been a um, that's been great. We've had great partners on on, you know, on our on our um, investor side of things. And uh, it's just allowed us to to blossom into that business, if you will. Um, and uh, it is really a core, our core now uh, in terms of things. Um, so the way that I like to think about it is if you, you know, to do something well at a small scale is very easy to do it well at a larger scale. It's very hard to take a large scale and try to do it on a small scale basis. So if we can really focus on the unit and we do that very, very well, We'll always do well on the larger scale, and so we still do both. That's why we still do, you know, smaller facilities as well, and um, and keeping that discipline we think is very important in terms of that, you know, how how we can continue to poke okay this business and make it make it easier and easier. What about from the sales perspective, engaging with customers? Hyperscalers have these very sophisticated teams, site selection teams, procurement teams. Um, I imagine they're quite a bit more aggressive than your typical enterprise uh, when they're negotiating with, with data center developers. Um, what's been your experience there? Uh, it's been good. Uh, you know, I, I mean, our sales team is predominantly focused on, on cloud. Um, it is core to our business. And um, I mean, I don't, we don't have a hard time meeting a lot of the requirements that these guys have. Um, you know, are they aggressive? Sure, but they deserve to be aggressive. These are the largest companies in the world, and this is their business that runs in these facilities. So, I don't really have a, I don't have a big issue with it. Our team doesn't have a big issue with it. I mean, you you know, you're dealing with the best companies 
that are making incredible impact out there and and um you know you be respectful of that you know where your place is and we're a solution provider not a no provider um that's that's the way that we look at it and uh, in northern virginia there have been concerns of overbuilding and underpricing as as there are every once in a while uh, lots of developers entered the market uh, there's lots of construction by new and existing developers uh, companies building a lot pricing quite aggressively has that affected your business in that market has that uh, changed the calculation you had when you originally decided to enter northern virginia and maybe we're one of the bad guys so <laughs> uh so no i mean i i don't think it has you know if you if you focus if you focus on how you do your business and and you you know it, it, it's it's um i'll use the car analogy again i mean you know toyota builds a very good car and they they do it very well and they can do it at a low cost basis because they do it so well and so if you have a low cost basis why wouldn't you pass that on to your clients and why wouldn't you give them the advantages that are associated with that um so maybe for someone else that's a stretch, but for us it's uh, we just consider it continuous improvement. Okay, Chris, that's all I have. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you, Evgeny. Good to talk to you as always. <laughs>